People were dumbfounded that a human heart was so black as to rot the horrible destruction they were witnessing. Neither childhood in its innocence nor old age in its weakness had been spared. The demon, whomever he was, had deliberately and coolly murdered youth at the threshold of life and age at the threshold of death. Awful thought that only the night before the neighborhood had been infested by such an imp or imps of hell. Welcome, curious listener, to Corn Fed Killer. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. The case I have for you today is quite a doozy. I know I always say that, but it definitely is. So let's get the trigger warnings out of the way right now. This case involves brutal murder, including the murders of children. Alrighty, so let's get into it, shall we? We are jumping in the way, way back machine for this one. The year 1893, the date September 19th. On this steamy September morning in Davies County, Indiana, 42-year-old farmhand James, or Bud, as he was known, Stone, went over to his neighbor's house, the home of Denson, Ratton, and his family. Bud was not only the Ratton's neighbor, but had also worked for them as a farmhand, and he would often run errands for Mrs. Ava Ratton, especially recently, because Mr. Denson Ratton had fallen ill with typhoid fever and was bedridden. In fact, it was for this recent reason that Bud, the, I'm sorry, it was for this reason that Bud was visiting the Ratton household on this particular morning to see if Mrs. Ratton needed him to go into town to retrieve medicine for her husband. But when Bud Stone arrived at the house, he was greeted with a most horrific sight. As this is 1893, and it would be another 40 years before American households had telephones, Bud Ratton ran to the neighbor, nearby town of Washington, Indiana, on foot to inform authorities of the gruesome scene at the rural home of the Rattons, two miles outside of town. Sheriff John G. Lemming and Coroner Charles McCowan, along with Undertaker M.L. Bowman, arrived at the Ratton home. They were with several other members of the community, and when they got to the house, the Ratton's yard was already filled with curious and concerned neighbors, many of whom either had already been inside or would later go inside the house to see evidence of the bloodbath that had occurred there. So <laughs> this is obviously much, much different than what happens at an active crime scene today. So can you imagine there are people just trompsing around this crime scene in and out of the house? It's, it's insane. 
All right. All six family members had been viciously murdered. Mrs. Elizabeth Ratton, Denson Ratton's 61-year-old mother, was discovered lying in a pool of blood. It was blatantly clear to authorities that there had been a terrible struggle. Mrs. Ratton had been hacked and cut with a sharp object, probably an axe, about the head and face. Both of her arms were broken. One of her hands was cut completely off, as well as two fingers of the other hand. Her chest bore several wounds as well, and her neck appeared to have been cut with a sharp knife. This poor woman fought for her life. Mr. Denson Ratton, who we know was sick in bed with typhoid fever, was found unsurprisingly in bed. He had a large gash in his forehead and another above each ear. There was a large pool of blood next to the bed where the blood had poured from his wounds. Mrs. Ava Ratton was found lying on the floor covered in blood. She had been beaten with a heavy blunt object in the head and face so severely that she was completely unrecognizable. Lying near his mother was the Ratton's youngest child, Henry, just three years old. He had also been beaten in the head, beaten to death. Not far from her mother and brother lie the body of six-year-old Stella, who had a large gash in the back of her head. Lastly, 11-year-old Ethel was found lying on the couch covered in blood, her head severely beaten in. And yet, miraculously, little Ethel was still alive, unconscious, but alive. The Indianapolis Journal described her as, quote, a bright little girl of 11 years who has not yet succumbed from a terrible, cruel blow in the middle of her forehead. Her skull is crushed and she is unconscious and supposed to be dying, end quote. And unfortunately, curious listener, she did indeed die a few days later in the hospital, never having regained consciousness. The quote I read in the introduction of the episode was said by one of the first journalists on the scene. Yes, curious listener, even in 1893, journalists arrived at the same, or pardon me, at the scene of a crime as quickly as possible. They had to get the story out, right? Back then, like we said, they weren't kept out of the crime scene. It was, the crime scene was not secured in the way that it is now. So oftentimes in the newspapers back in the day, um, you were often reading firsthand accounts. So it's kind of crazy to think that journalists, you know, not to mention members of the public were, you know, looking firsthand at, you know, bloodied, beaten, mutilated bodies. It's crazy. All right. So authorities did not find the murder weapon or weapons at the crime scene. They did notice that the window to the elderly Mrs. Ratton's bedroom had been kicked in, the sash broken, and there was a bloody heel print on the ledge. So it looks as if maybe 
the person or persons gained entry through that window. And it, they thought that the print looked to be from a men's boot. Officials concluded that the killer had to be someone that the family knew because it seems like that would have been someone who knew that Mr. Ratton was ill and confined to his bed and so that they knew that they would not have to contend with a man when they came into the house. And so, you know, he wouldn't pose a problem. The motive was assumed to be robbery for these. This family was a well-to-do farming family. And in particular, the matriarch, Elizabeth Ratton, who was Mr. Ratton's mother, was known to be quite miserly and she received a healthy pension after her husband's death, not to mention, like we said, they ran a successful farm and she was known to not be a spender, like I said, miserly. Um, so it was believed that she kept money hidden in the town. I'm sorry, in the home. Um, it, it, this might seem odd to you, but it's a small town and people know what's going on with each other. All right, so police at first suspect a man named Charles McCafferty, who is the brother-in-law of Denson Ratton. And they suspect him because his wife was the only heir to the family's farm and the monies now that all of the rest of the family was dead. The Ratton's neighbors did not believe that McCafferty was guilty, and um, they were not quiet about their opinion either. Residents spoke out for him and eventually provided him with an alibi, and he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. So now police are baffled, and they're unsure where to look or if they're ever going to find this guy, uh, you know, because who among them would do such a thing? Who among them was the demon that they were searching for? Um, at this point, they are calling in bloodhounds to search the areas for any clues, any traces of blood, any, anything. And they are sending out search parties of groups of men night after night for days. This goes on the neighbor who found the bodies, Bud Stone assisted the coroner in dressing the family members for the funeral and served as a pallbearer. And the funeral was well attended and the community mourned the deaths of their innocent neighbors. And, you know, they also looked over their shoulders, wondering if one of them would be next. About a month after the murders, police make an arrest. And the residents of the sleepy little town are shocked when they learn that the man the police arrested for the horrific crime was none other than James, a.k.a. Bud Stone. Stone was brought into the station and questioned by police. Even more shocking was that he made a confession, but he did not confess to committing the murders alone. Instead, Bud Stone named six men as his accomplices. All right, so this took place on October 22nd, 19. I'm sorry, 1893. <laughs> Bud says in front of a grand jury, 
quote, I know we will all be hanged, but I am going to tell the whole truth, end quote. He says that a man named Grandison Cosby planned the whole thing. The plan was to rob the house. They figured that Mrs. Elizabeth Ratton had about $4,000 hidden about the house. Stone continues on implicating five other men. Okay, I'm back. I had to pause there for a second. I don't know if you heard anything, but my daughter came down and was calling my name. <laughs> All right. So he continues on implicating five other men, a man named Lon Williams, a man named Martin Yardborough, William K., John White, and Gibson Clark. Bud says that Grandison ordered them to carry out the robbery. The gang, according to Bud, agreed to meet at a hickory tree near the Ratton home at 1 a.m. on September 18th. Stone says that when he arrived at the hickory tree that night, none of the other men were there. He says that he was a little late, so he went on to the Ratton house. He says that the men came out covered in blood, and one of them said to him, Yes, damn you, we had to kill them, and we will make you as bloody as we are. Then the men, quote, in a spirit of devilish jollity, end quote, attacked him, rolling him around in the dirt and striking him with their bloody clothes that they had removed from their bodies expressly for this purpose. He says that he asked for asked them for his cut of the money, which to me is a bit odd because he didn't participate in the murders, let alone the robbery. So why would he think that he was owed anything? So I think this kind of, mm, to me, speaks of uh, lying. All right. So he says that the men told him they didn't find any money. He testifies that the gang then, um, or pardon me, that the gang had a short-handled axe and a corn knife and a short piece of a scythe blade with them. And he tells police and the grand jury that he didn't know what they did with the burner weapons. He says that then he went home and he hid his bloody clothes and then he went to bed. So I don't know what you're thinking at this time, curious listener, but I'm not particularly buying this whole thing because, you know, he's making a confession and I'm doing some air quotes here, but he's not really saying that he's guilty of anything. You know what I mean? So interestingly enough, Stone's wife also testifies in front of the grand jury. His wife says that her husband did not arrive home until 4 a.m. the day of the murders. She says that he went to the spring to get a drink when he got home, and then he went to bed. She was up early, she said, of course, because they're running a farm. She went to the spring to get water for cooking. Remember, curious listener, 1893, there's no running water in the house. She noticed blood around the spring and saw that he had rinsed out a bloody shirt. His own daughter would later corroborate Mrs. Stone's testimony. So mm, it's not looking good for old Bud here. 
All right, the six men that he named were arrested. Gibson Clark was a school teacher, and no one really thought he had any involvement in the crime. Yardborough was described as, quote, particularly desperate looking, end quote, which, you know, is just rude. <laughs> but he seemed cool as a cucumber, and he wasn't worried about proving his innocence. Kay, Williams, and White all had alibis, and though quiet, were confident that they could prove that they were innocent as well. Cosby, you'll remember, who Stone named as the ringleader, was, quote, the most cunning rascal of the crowd, end quote. <laughs> Don't you just love the way they talked in the old-timey days? All right. Uh, Reverend W.H. Strauss, the prison chaplain, believed Stone's story, and he said of Grandison Cosby, quote, he was capable of such a diabolical deed, end quote. He had a criminal record and a reputation for being violent. He definitely made a good suspect. Many were convinced of his guilt and of the guilt of the other men, to some degree or other anyways. On the other hand, Deputy Warden Howard did not believe Stone's story for a hot shit minute and was convinced that he acted alone in viciously annihilating the Ratton family. He called upon Mrs. Called upon Mrs. Ratton to help him find out the truth. Mrs. Ratton visited her husband in jail and reportedly advised him to tell the truth, telling him, you know, in her own way, basically, that this was the only way he could avoid the flames of hell. Deputy Howard then told Stone, quote, If the men that you implicated turned out to be innocent, you would commit an offense almost as grave as the one to which you've confessed, end quote. Deputy Howard's efforts, as well as Stone's wife's pleas for him to tell the truth, had the desired effect. And on October 26, 1893, James Bud Stone made a final confession. Before he tells the story in gruesome detail, he explains that he was that he has sought the Lord and believes he is forgiven and he even submitted a letter to his wife a letter mind you that was published in the newspaper in which he praised his wife for telling the truth to the grand jury and thus sealing his fate <laughs> so uh, you know the 1893s of it all you know this is um something that you would not really see today. Um, Bud Stone finally admits that he acted alone, that there had been no other men at the house that night, that Cosby did not orchestrate any such plot. He does say that he had talked to some of the men about robbing old Mrs. Ratton, but that nothing came out of those talks. He decided on his own to rob the family. He doesn't say if he had murder in mind prior to being let in or prior to going into the house that night. But, you know, curious listener, it doesn't really matter at this point, does it? I mean, whether he decided ahead of time, whether it was premeditated or not, he viciously, brutally murdered six innocent people. 
you know, so to you know, in my mind, whether he thought about it beforehand or not, doesn't matter two shits, right? I mean, it does not matter at all. All right. So Stone says that the morning of the murder, he knocked on the Ratton's door and Mrs. Ava Ratton answered. He says that he asked her how her husband was faring and that he told her then that he had a horrible toothache and he asked her if she had anything for it. She told him that she believed she did have some wizard oil in the house. Uh, wizard oil was a sort of cure-all back then for pain. When she turned from Stone to retrieve the wizard oil, he struck her with a corn knife. Now, curious listener, in case you don't know, a corn knife is a super sharp knife, similar to a machete. It's about that size. Um, a lot of times the blade is curved, though, kind of like a, a scythe or a scythe. Um, but that, you know, that's what it is. And it's used for cutting corn stalks, you know, hence the name bamboo reeds and, you know, other, uh, sort of things. All right. So he struck her with a corn knife, knocking her to the ground where he continued to bludgeon her until he was certain she was dead. Whew. He then struck little Henry, three-year-old Henry, who had toddled into the room after his mother. A newspaper would later describe the action like this, quote, with a blow from the axe, the little fellow's soul was sent into eternity, end quote. So, you know, sort of a beautiful sentiment, you know, to describe an undeniably awful, horrific event, this poor baby. At this point, Stone says that Ethel, 11-year-old Ethel, came into the room, and when she saw him, she cried out, quote, Bud Stone, what are you doing here? End quote. And this fucking monster rushed at this little girl and struck her with the axe. Then he went into the room where Mr. Ratton lay sick with typhoid and struck him in the forehead with a corn knife. He then struck six-year-old Stella a sledge-like blow with the axe, killing her instantly. He went into the room of 61-year-old Elizabeth Ratton and pounced upon her in the dark and just started blindly slashing and striking at her with the corn knife and the axe. She put up quite a fight, like we said earlier and the room was soaked in blood. The newspaper would later say this about it, quote, it is impossible to find language to do justice to this awful scene, end quote. Uh, you know, you could just imagine how, or not, I mean, it's almost, it's, it, you can imagine, you know, a blood bath, basically a blood soaked scene. And, and it's almost unfathomable to think that people, lay people, people about the town were just traipsing around, seeing this sort of a scene firsthand, you know, golly. All right. After killing Elizabeth Ratton, he went into the room where Denson Ratton lie once more and struck him twice. 
more, two more times, to ensure his demise. Then he returned to the room where he had brutally murdered Elizabeth Ratton and began ransacking it for money. And it was during this ransacking that he claimed to sort of come into himself and realize what he had done. And so he decided to stop ransacking and leave. He never did get any money. But before he left the property, he did kick in the window to make it appear as if someone had broke in. And we know what happened after that, curious listener. He went home, washed off his bloody clothes, went to bed, and then pretended to discover the scene the next day. Ugh. Terrible. All right, so here we are now. This demon has made a full confession. He pleads guilty and is found guilty of the murders of the Ratton family. He is sentenced to death by hanging. And on February 17th, 1894, at 12.02 a.m., James Bud Stone is hung at the Jeffersonville Penitentiary. There are about 70 men in attendance, and he is said to have died swiftly and noiselessly. And there you have it, curious listener, the horrific, horrific murders of the Ratton family. Now, before I end the episode, I want to introduce a new segment, and I'm so excited about this. I'm calling it back in the day. <laughs> so we're going to have this segment, hopefully at the end of all of our upcoming episodes. And back in the day will be where I share some little tidbit about life, you know, quote unquote, back in the day, <laughs> whether that be an old time product or a medicine or a crime or just an interesting or funny anecdote. I just really love to learn about the way things were back in the day because, you know, it's always interesting, sometimes baffling, and oftentimes just fucking nuts, you know. Yeah, I just love it. All right, so remember wizard oil that I mentioned earlier in the episode? I'd never heard of it before researching for this episode, and I'm willing to bet that outside of a Dungeons & Dragons type game, you haven't heard of Wizard Oil either. <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. Hamlin's Wizard Oil was a medicine that was sold in the U.S. beginning in the 1860s. It was advertised as, quote, There is no sore, it will not heal, no pain, it will not subdue. End quote. It was particularly popular for the treatment of rheumatism or arthritis, although, like the slogan says, there's no pain, it will not subdue, and no sore, it will not heal. So, it, like we said, it was marketed as like a cure-all. People were using it for toothaches, for bunions, for everything. They were using it on their skin. They were drinking it. It was being used for everything. It was created by a magician <laughs> named John Austin Hamlin of Chicago, Illinois. He marketed the shit out of this stuff. He was a traveling performer, you know, a magician, right? So he had troops of performers touting the praises of his wizard oil far and wide. 
They performed skits involving the oil. They even sang songs about it. Hamlin would give humorous lectures praising the magical cure-all. He claimed that it not only worked on humans, but it was good for animals too. It would get rid of the fleas and the worms and everything. He even had a poster painted up that showed an elephant drinking the stuff with its trunk. Hamlin declared that his wizard oil could cure cancer. <laughs> Are you loving this? I'm loving it. He would later get in trouble for making this claim, and he was fined $200 in 1916 under the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act for claiming that it cured cancer. But this didn't stop people from buying it. And Hamlin, dude made a fortune. He used the profits from his wizard oil to found Chicago's Grand Opera House Theater. The theater existed for decades, changing, changing hands and names a few times, and it was eventually demolished in 1962. The Richard J. Daly Center stands at the property, to, or uh, yeah, on that property today. So I know you're dying to learn what was in this Hamlin's Wizard Oil. Well, it was mostly alcohol, 50 to 70%. It also contained camphor, ammonia, chloroform, turpentine, sassafras, and cloves. <laughs> I imagine the sassafras and cloves were added to um, maybe help it taste a little bit better than what I can only imagine turpentine, ammonia, and chloroform taste like. <laughs> And think about it, people would use this stuff topically and internally. They were drinking the shit and putting it on their face and on their skin. It's crazy. So I'll post a picture of an advertisement for the wizard oil on the Instagram page. You got to check it out. It's, it's funny. It's also kind of sweet in a way, but I just love it. And I hope you enjoyed that new segment back in the day. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening. You can check us out on Instagram at cornfedkillerpodcast and on Twitter at cornfedkillerpodcast. Leave us a Gmail. Send us a Gmail at cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Thank you so much again for listening. Until next time, curious listener. Bye-bye. I'm going to go drink some wizard oil. <laughs>